Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef podcast. Today's guest is a curator, poet, writer and much more all the way from California. Please welcome to the show Pamela Miller. How are you doing? Hi Chris, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Um, as I said before off camera, thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Um, for those who don't know in my community, Pam has been supporting me for a, for a while now and um is a sort of a firm member of my community and i think i've interviewed a few people from from my community here and there um i don't really have any kind of like specific things i guess i look for in, in guests particularly I, th I think it's just like i reach out to people and and you know if i think they've got like maybe interesting stories to share or if they they I think they deserve like recognition, not by any means saying this podcast does anything for them, but if nothing else, I, th I hope I can give a good interview, you know? Um, and along those lines, I, you know, obviously I've, I've always seen the comments that you put in my live streams and stuff. And I can tell you're one of those people that's had like a very interesting life. I can, I just get that vibe. And that was kind of, one of my key reasons why I wanted to reach out to you and, and do this. And also just, you know, I, I do personally think everyone has something to share. I truly believe this. I think the art is always in making people feel comfortable and then getting those stories, you know, and, and seeing where those things can go. Um, and getting straight into it, you know, with, with you, um, what can you tell us about this work as a curator? Because you, you, do, you, do you work as a curator at Hit Record. So what can you tell us yes. about that? What exactly is a curator? It's a uh, hit record is a, um, a platform that's very much like all the other social media sites, except it's run by uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the actor. And hmm. um, he put together this community about 12, years ago, 15 years ago, with his brother who passed early in life. Um, and they had this little, um, basically, garage setup where they would, you know, um, produce little skits and things and, or just show his, his brother was a fire um, dancer and uh, they would tape him and they would play drums and, um, and started off just small. And then he eventually started inviting people to, if they were writers or artists, uh, musicians, singers, to join the community. And the difference is it's not competitive, it's supposed to be collaborative. And um, you try to remix each other's work. So oh, okay. it's, it's, it's sort of, different in the sense of where TikTok is, look at me, look at me. He's more into, um, let's work on a project together, you know, and um, it's all about collaboration there. So. So does Joseph work on stuff with people himself on the actual site or is he just kind of managing it and then everyone else does that or what's the deal there? Um, there's, um, my experience with him was he rewrote a short little story I wrote. Oh, wow. I mean, and um, 
so he remixed it and um and then whenever i would write whatever um subject you know that they they would have prompts and so i would write something he would ask me a question and then um we would have a dialogue you know in texting and in these messages back and forth so i guess um i became curator because i was featured a lot and now i have basically it's an honorary title and you <laughs> you know i have the power to feature people ah and, okay and say hey look guys you know i think this is an exceptional you know dialogue or poem or short story you know um and so um that's my my power <laughs> there and um other than that it's it's i've been work i'm not working well i've been doing i've been there for like nine years i just mm. had an anniversary a couple of days ago you said, so, you've been retired for nine years is that right or you've been there for I, nine years I've, I've, I've been with this um <gasps> community for nine years oh cool close to 10 yeah. there you go there you go yeah. all right it's, it was uh you know i actually came upon it because i got rejected by so many other social groups that i just here was a you know community that was welcoming and um encouraging you know supportive of your work and um and then they all started slowly going to Instagram, though. <laughs> I don't know why, but, uh, you know, it, 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 the format at HitRecord changed a lot. And it's, it's, it's kind of very, uh, well, it's very different from any of the other formats. So that you're, you're kind of bombarded with here, right in Ford, letter of no four words tell me you know a sad story <laughs> and that would be the prompt of the day um why were you rejected from the other sites i'm, I'm curious about that well um i guess things like facebook you know it it, it, it just i wanted a place where you could actually have a conversation and you could chat with people and um you can't really you know with with instagram you're kind of um performing for people mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and um or showing something off you know and all i wanted was sort of this interaction i wanted to be able to have an interactive sort of um quality to um i guess that's why tiktok was so interesting to me that people could talk to each other talk to the host mm. and um, and it was all live you know so um it's, so it's less it's, it's, you weren't rejected you you were just seeking something a bit more meaningful and more interaction and then you just didn't find that on those other websites and then that's right. led you to tiktok and to hit record so yeah okay yeah. 
I was, I was going to say because I, I was I was sitting there thinking like well, that's crazy. You're you're a very talented um, writer and poet, and you, you know you're a really nice person. Like I can't imagine rejected you. That's so mean. <laughs> it's just like what you know. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit more about this this hit record community. Like how how big is it? I mean, I'll be honest, I'd, I'd never heard of it before. And with such yeah. a high-profile name like Joseph Gordon-Levitt attached to it, you'd think it would have more sort of fanfare. Like, is it an American-only yeah, social media site? International. And uh, international. It's an, it is international, and um, they do pay people when something gets produced and picked up by a, a network. Hmm. Um, they had a hit record for television a couple, a few years, 10 years ago or something. And no, not that long ago, shorter than that. And uh, it, it ran on um, Netflix for a couple, you know, for a while. So you could watch it there. And um, the people who worked on the show or they published some books. So people who got their works published, um, they get paid for it. So, they don't get paid a lot, but you know, because it's a percentage and there's a lot of transparency and you know, and then and Joseph Gordon Levitt himself says things like, Well, we're not in it for the money. Mm. You know, that's not what art should be about. You know, it should be just purer than that, I guess. Um, um so he he also is very strange. He said he's a malevolent dictator. <laughs> he's he's a, a malevolent dictator. Do you say? Ben, benevolent. Benevolent. <laughs> yeah, I knew I got those two mixed up. Um, yeah, I, I get that. He seems to come across well. I, actually, that was the next question I was going to ask you. Is like, what well, two twofold? Like a. What is he like? Like, because obviously you said that you've you've spoken to him a little bit, uh, gotten to know him a little bit, and secondly, like, what is his current day involvement with this website? I mean, as you said, you you've been made like a curator, so he's he's got like some investment in this, but obviously he's pretty busy with acting and and, and music, I believe. Um, impressions of yeah, Gordon Joseph Levitt. Gordon, I can't get his name. Joseph Gordon Levitt. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, it is a confusing name. So he used to just go by regular Joe <laughs> on the site. Now he's just Joe. Just Joe. You know? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think his name on uh, Reddit is Joseph Golden Rabbit. <laughs> so, well, from this, I'm getting a vibe that he's not very doesn't really have like an ego it's just very kind of like you know he he enjoys this this is just his artistic interest is that kind of the deal with him um yeah i guess some people love him or hate him you know and um some describe him as this overly cheerful song and dance man you know <laughs> who uh oh is bubbly and uh and then some people really see him as, as a serious actor, mm. you know. And uh, I think he's uh, he's in this uh, Showtime series called Super Pumped. 
and he plays uh, the CEO of Uber. Mm, that's interesting. Is this back when they were a bit more controversial years ago? Yeah. 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 I, I, I recently watched like a mini doc about that and it's, there's definitely a story there. So I can see why they're doing that. <laughs> anyway, bringing it back to you. Um, so experience on, on this particular website, like you, you obviously you, you expressed that the, um, the format is to remix other people's work sort of thing. So what other people's work have you remixed? What, what interesting work of, um, what interesting interpretations of your work has been produced? Like talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I tend to be the one that they remix okay. from. Um, because I, I guess I am still sort of in the same mode of the TikTok mentality where I have a product or an idea or a story and I just want to get it out there. Right. And so, um, most people want to be actors and, and performers. So they liked, they like taking my material and reading it um mm, or of course. It yeah. and um um i've tried editing and remixing other people's work and it's tough because i don't have the technical skills okay to do that um but uh and it's very hard for me to rewrite somebody else's writing mm. i feel like that's um sacrilegious almost, you know? <laughs> i get it i get it yeah i suppose you end up just changing it from what it is in a way which is right. i don't know interesting yeah okay yeah, when, i mean i can try to uh um collaborate with someone as we're writing if we were writing together you know and bouncing ideas off of each other but at hit record we would write although um i did a one line oh i did a one line um uh it's not a poem even. It's just a, I am thinking of donating my body to science fiction was the line. And someone turned it into a song where they just sort of sang this, those words over and over. So then they took that and turned it into a music video. Oh, cool. So um, it involved animators now. So that's what I mean about it being a collaboration, but being a writer, I can't draw, you know, I can't write music. Um, so people were adding music and um, illustrations and, you know, to, to make this video. And it was, it was exciting, you know, to see. And people have done that with my poetry. They've written um, or sang songs um, based on my poems. So uh, it's it's an, it's 
yeah, it is different. It's 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 different than other um, social media sites. It, you know, it's, it's very interactive. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting concept. I'm surprised I haven't heard of it before, but mm, maybe it'll gain traction in years to come. Who's yeah? Never know. It depends on the marketing. To be fair, I mean, if Joseph Gordon-Levitt is pursuing it more as a passion project as opposed to you know a thing to make money then it will probably just kind of sit there in in its current state not necessarily that's not necessarily a bad thing you know i mean as as you sort of remarked and that he'd said you know it's if it's just about the art then i suppose it's already fulfilling its purpose um anyway let's bring it back to you I'd love to know how you actually got into writing poetry. How long have you been writing poetry for? Um, this is funny. When I was in um, college, I was a trauma major, and I was determined to be a uh, like a playwright. Oh, okay. But I took a screenwriting class, and I was 18, and I knew nothing about screenwriting. And I and it was a night course, and I saw the other students coming in. They're all middle aged, you know, and they know they seemed like they knew what they were doing in the class, and I was clueless. And I basically, before I failed the class, I dropped it, and I switched over to take a poetry class with my girlfriend, and and then I just got excelled in that class. You know, and I became like the star student in, in um, my poetry class. So I, uh, I kept taking the course, you know, more in depth. And uh, so that was uh, that was a long, long time ago <laughs> since college. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. And um, where would you say you gain inspiration for your poetry? So I think this is always kind of a key thing with musicians and writers, etc. It's, it's always different. Where do you get inspiration? I, you know, they say, write what you know. So basically, I'm, my stuff is very personal mm -hmm. and autobiographical, you know. All right. And, and, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of, um, well, I, I saw the strange, I know I'm, I'm digressing, but I had an idea that I could go on TikTok and read my journals since sure. I kept a, for, um, oh, since I was nine or something. You know? Oh, wow. Okay. Consistently yeah. the whole time. Yeah. With gaps, I would have some gaps and I lost some of the information. Oh you know yeah by just so but there's um uh, a lot of material there and i saw someone on tiktok reading from his journal his diary and showing it you know and the time he wrote it and i thought oh someone already thought of that you know <laughs> i don't I, and and that's sort of like how i feel about my writing is um i sort of think of it as writing in a journal Mm. but then but but then make it not me <laughs> you know then try to be like try to see uh if i can be another character 
other than myself and then put my put that character in whatever situation you know i may be maybe you know involved in or something so do you do you actually read from the journal on tiktok and other places or not i haven't done that no okay uh, i want to say something to you that i read a while ago which i think you need to hear just on this And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, so bear with me on this, but everything that's already thought of has already most likely been done at some point. And I know you know that, right? But it's the first time that you've done it. Right. And I think that what I will say about your ethos right now is that if you're approaching this with the whole character thing, like that's just what you want to do. That's how you feel comfortable. Then fair play. Like that's, you know, do it how you feel comfortable with it. But what I will say is that I think never be afraid to be who you are. You know, like I think it's important that if, if, if it's like, you're a bit trepidatious about like, like you're not sure, like, Oh, should I, shouldn't I, always be yourself i believe and i'm not I'm, you know i i'm not saying like you need this advice or anything but i just think it's important to know that like that's an option you know because i remember when i first started doing all of this stuff i had something uh, similar to like an identity crisis i don't know i was unsure of myself as all of us are when we start something new and I fell into a rhythm, but I remember making a decision very early on. And I don't know if it was the blogging, the sort of vlogging or podcasting or whatever, but I remember thinking, I see that other people do a character online. That's their thing. I could do that, but I don't want to for a few reasons. And I don't have it, anything against people that do that. That's their decision. But I looked at it and I thought, that's very tiresome to play a character consistently. And if I would become successful, let's say I became famous, I think it would be strange to, to almost like meet people and, you, and you're not that person. And I always wondered like what it's like for them. Maybe it's a disappointment for their fans. You meet the person and they're not the same or I, I don't know I mean it depends and we're all humans anyway whether we're famous or not it doesn't really matter but um, if you're playing a character the expectation is you play that character all the time and I could see how that would be very frustrating but or tiresome or something and for me that was just a, a decision that I made and I, I stuck with it and over time it got easier and you know it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress all the time but um, I think we, with your work, everything that I've heard so far, like I listen to it and it's very, it's very heartfelt. It's very easy, I think, to just write about things in general. Anyone can write a poem, a song, you know, but to write from... from like a deeper level, from, from something that is, and again, I'm terrible at articulating this, but 
to write something that's real, that's relatable, that people can connect with, that is purely just you communicating truth from your life, I think is particularly special. And I always get that whenever I finish reading one of your poems. So I think you should definitely consider maybe reading that journal and and, and in your way, I think that would be really cool to listen to. I think, I think, and I think another thing as well is that there's a lot of opportunities with that as well, because you mentioned that you've been doing that since the age of nine. And I think it was interesting to then reflect on who you were versus who you are and what you've learned over that time, you know? So you could say like, okay, nine-year-old me thought this and believed this about life. And this is what I've learned since then. And, you know, here's the journey and, you know, whatever the lessons are to be learned, that's what they are, you know? But yeah, please do consider it. <laughs> I think it would be very, I, th I think a lot of people would benefit from, from hearing your words. That's my thoughts on that. <clears throat> But um, moving it forward with regards to your poems, what advice could you give to aspiring writers and poets? Like what, people that are maybe nervous about getting into it or people that have never done it before or like what advice over the years of refining and creating your work could you give to aspiring writers and poets? Read a lot of other poets. Okay. Who is who, who are some of yours, your favorites? My favorites, classics. I'm Robert Frost, um, um, T. S. Eliot, mm -hmm. um, the Barrington, you know, uh, Barrett's, um, was it Barrett Browning? Um, there's so many poets. That's the thing. You have to uh, kind of find your own voice, you know, and that's the, the thing about being a writer is standing out because of the way you say it. Is there anything? And, Go on, please. No, well, I just remembered there was a uh, a poem by Mark Strand, and he was sort of a Zen Buddhist, and he wrote something about um, when I move, the air moves around me and fills in the void, you know, that was once there. And so the last line is, um, I move to keep things whole. And it just sort of, certain poems stick with you. Um, I paraphrased it really badly, but uh, certain ones stick with you because you think, oh, I've never thought of that before, you know? Mm. And I remember, I remember the thing, like you said earlier, well, no one has an original thought really, you know? But um, I remember going to a museum with a class and you know and this is like in elementary school 
and someone had done a black square in a black square. <laughs> and some kid said, hey, I could have done that. And, and the said, well, you didn't though. <laughs> and that's the difference. So um, I guess, uh, yeah, finding, finding your own voice, finding your own uh, uh, talent actually, you know. It's hard. I was thinking about this earlier. I was, I went for a walk and I was just kind of, you know, like how it is. You go for a walk and thoughts start coming to your head. And I was thinking about everything else that I do in my life seems pretty straightforward. Um, for instance, I do a podcast. Yes, there's millions of podcasts. Many people that probably do almost exactly the same thing that I do. But it's me doing it. When I write a song, yeah, a million songs have probably been written that sound exactly like that. Similar, similar words, similar theme, everything. But somehow writing, I feel, is harder than everything because it's like you are simply communicating the same lessons again and again and again. And maybe the art is in the way it's worded because I have to say like, when you were recounting that poem and you, you know, you're talking about how it makes you feel and what it makes you think. It's like, that's how I feel sometimes when I hear certain poems or read certain things, you know, it's stuff, you know, already, but sometimes the way that it's written or the way it's spoken just hits you in a particular way. And I don't know, maybe it moves you, maybe it reminds you of something, maybe it resonates with you on a particular level. Maybe that's the art in writing. I don't know but I do think it's probably one of the hardest mediums, like from a creative standpoint, it's, it's hard. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, please go on. It's, it's hard to communicate, to communicate <laughs> just in general, you know, um, just expressing yourself and, uh, if you're opinionated, you know, being able to back it up with facts. And uh, it's, it is, it's difficult to talk to other people, you know, and, and hope that they can understand what you're trying to, you know, to convey. Well, how, how have you learned to become a good communicator? Um, well, it's funny that you're interviewing me because I would normally be in your position because okay. I was uh, broadcast journalism and um, I ended up working for a TV station at the time. So um, I could, uh, I was able to uh, produce and direct a little documentary when I was 25. And wow. it's it a great feeling of, you, I just had a, a small camera crew, you know, the cameraman and the sound person. And I went and did like four hours of filming yeah. <laughs> for seven and a half minutes of airtime. <laughs> That's the harsh reality. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did all this work and you know, and then I was, it was going to be 15 minutes. And then they said, no, you have to 
edit it in half. And I stayed up like 24 hours with the editor and it was, it was exhilarating, you know, it was an exhausting and, uh, but uh, fascinating. And uh, I felt really proud at that moment, you know, I was doing the voiceover for it. And uh, my mother was at the time, she said, who's the narrator? I said, I am. And she goes, no, that's not your voice. <laughs> so I was trying to be very professional. Yeah. I was, you know, and at the time I had a very uh, squeaky, nervous voice when I was like younger. And, you know, when I get nervous, it would be like, well, hi, Chris, how are you? <laughs> you know, that little girl voice. And so I was trying to get rid of that and sound like a reporter. <laughs> It's funny as well that you mentioned that because like I've started I've noticed that I've started doing the same thing with I don't know voiceovers podcasting acting whatever um sometimes it's conscious other times it's not and I'm like hmm that's interesting but I think it's like you kind of realize that in order as you say to com better communicate the message or construct something that kind of I guess feels more professional. It's that like you fall into that. But I feel like a part of that is a product of the society around us, you know, watching TV when you're growing up, seeing the news, whatever. They all talk in the same tone. You know, you never hear someone on the news go, right, how's it going? It's the news. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't, it, it'd be, it'd be hilarious. I'd watch the news if it was like that. That'd be hilarious. But, uh, <laughs> but I guess, I guess in a way you wouldn't take it seriously. And I guess that's the whole point, isn't it? To be taken mm -hmm. seriously sometimes. Well, uh, it's, it's, do you know, it's a tricky one actually, because I was going, I was going to say, oh, to be taken seriously, you have to do that. But I don't think that's true necessarily. For example, there's, um, there's a celebrity musician here in the UK called Big Nasty. And he sp he speaks in a very London it's London slang, you know that kind of way. And he has like a chat show that he does. And it's really really good. Um, and he's true to himself. He doesn't put on a persona. He doesn't you know try to speak more eloquently. He just talks as himself, and it's really good. And all his guests seem comfortable. You know, he's had all manner of guests. He he had like Louis Theroux on there, for example, and he seemed to be really comfortable. You know, he wasn't, you know, then again, Louis Theroux has spoken to all sorts of people, but you get my, you get my point. It's like, um, I think that there doesn't always have to be rules, but sometimes in certain industries like news and stuff, there, there just seems, that just seems to be the case for some reason. But yeah. Anyway, I do like to waffle on. I do apologize. Bringing it back to you, I've got to ask about your broadcasting career. Um, what would you say were the key kind of, takeaways or lessons that you took from broadcast journalism oh um the funny thing is uh, i i i used to think that i wanted to be like an anchor person right I, and so i wanted that recognition like be the connie chung well she was a reporter at the time you know mm -hmm. and she was the only asian sort of representation of you know that I could relate to so um when I did my 
documentary, I actually cut out myself from oh. the film footage because they had listening shots, right? And you asking the questions so that you would know who the reporter was. Well, I was so insecure that I kept saying, oh, I'm too ugly, my face is fat, I don't want to be, Adam, and I want this to be a serious documentary. And, and then everyone told me later, you're fooled, you're supposed to put yourself in there, you know, you're promoting yourself. And I didn't see it that way. I saw it as I'm making a film, I'm a filmmaker, you know, and um, so it changed, you know, I mean, if I really wanted to be a broadcaster, a broadcaster, I would have had to like show my face. Mm. And at that time, I was just not secure enough to do that, you know? And I just thought, oh, I just want to produce a film and be thought of as a director or something, you know? So, so this was like a short-lived thing that you did then at one, at one, at one time. That's, and then, yeah, and then afterwards, I started working on a lot of other shows from mm -hmm. different companies. Once I left there, I went on to do pilots, and uh, we, and we did a a, a show that um, actually aired for a couple of seasons, and it was. Um, a TV show about um, teenage, uh, a little teenage rock and roll band. <laughs> and they're in high school. And um, uh, I was supposed to write, you know, be able to write scripts for them and stuff. But um, they sort of uh, trade everyone because they were sort of made them so they got like grants and things from Norman Lear and um uh Alex Haley who did Roots. Oh right. He said um yes you're going to employ um minorities, women, people of color, mm -hmm. you know, younger people, um and give them a chance to be art you know, to be product productive in, in the um in TV. And what they ended up doing was like hiring professional, you know, hacks, TV, you know, people who are like 45, 50 years old, who've been doing this all their life, you know, writing TV scripts. And I remember feeling very betrayed by them because they took me away from um, KCT, the station I was working at to give me a chance to write and they never gave me that chance you know they they gave it to professional writers rather than groom within the company because yeah, in my notes here I, I can see that you've taken on a, a lot of different roles but what you're saying is you kind of you wanted to be that writer you wanted to be that broadcaster and then you were kind of pushed more into associate producer researcher kind of territory okay yeah so obviously kcet is associated with pbs what could you right. tell us about your experiences there and were you ever able to sort of get that stuff 
that you wanted out there in, in, in written form or um, did you sort of just stick to like producing and, 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 uh, and researching? Um, yeah, I think the only people that really got the chance to be really creative and do something on their own were um, the film department, the people that could actually um, go out and pitch an idea and then have it say, okay, you know, have the, the um, executive producer okay it. And then uh, they could go off and make whatever film they want, you know, a human interest story or um, some newsworthy, something newsworthy. Um, and it, it, KCT at that time that I was there was sort of the golden age. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, they did Cosmos there with mm. Carl Sagan. And uh, that was a big deal at the time to have him do that. Um, um, I got, I got a, a good experience working for them. I didn't, I never stayed with the company for very long. Most of the times because they changed managements and then I was always trying to work my way up. And the thing was in show business, you don't stay in any position longer than six months, you know? Oh, wow. And so I was always trying to advance and become, you know, and, and at one point I was working um, for a company that was like HBO and Showtime and they were competing, you know, it was in the early 80s and um, I had to do publicity for them. So I would do interviews and uh, with the celebrities and review films, write the blurbs for them, collect the material, press skits from all the studios. And that's, that was the fun times when I got to just drive to MGM and Paramount, Fox, and, uh, you know, <laughs> um, and pick up all, all their, you know, and then get invited to all the screenings of movies too. So they're, um... Were there any celebrity interviews that particularly stand out for you? Ones that you're proud of or ones that were just weird for some reason or anything at all? <laughs> well, they're kind of old, but like I remember being excited that I was, I was going to interview um, Brian De Palma's wife, who was an actress. And um, so I remember calling and, and getting their machine and this is Brian De Palma's, <laughs> you know, and and such and such. I can't remember the actress's name right now. She was, uh, um, she was the person I was supposed to interview though. I remember being so nervous though. I was, I was like gonna throw up, <laughs> you know, just because of the idea I'm going to interview someone and I don't, you know, I don't have a, a vast knowledge of their, they didn't have a, a big movie background because she was young you know, yeah. and she was just starting off. But Brian De Palma was the producer, I mean, director, you know, even at that time. And uh, um, I did I did a lot of Hollywood stuff when I was a teenager. 
I worked for um, Willie Morris, putting on a fundraiser part, um, every year. And it was like 200 men in the showbiz industry uh, that would come to listen to like Carl Reiner when he was alive, you know, and uh, stand comedians that were, well, really well known, but this was a long time ago. So a lot of these people passed, but I got to meet people like Rod Serling, who was, uh, you know, the Twilight Zone, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get Twilight Zone in England? It was here. I've never personally watched it, which people oh. go crazy. I'm a big sci-fi fan, but yeah, I never watched that. Yeah. But I, it's but, it's a big thing here too. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was shown yeah. here. So it was all the celebrities and, um, you know, um, and then there was only two women <laughs> who were coordinating the whole thing. So it was it was sort of an odd time for me because I was like nineteen and and then they would they would tell you know naughty jokes and and then they would the whole room would turn around and look at us to see if we were reacting and oh, we right. or so it was all right. But then like Johnny Carson came up to me and asked, um did you learn any new words tonight? <laughs> no. And it's <laughs> something weird like that, you know. Do you have any? Uh, I, go on. No, so I, I mean, I used to think Johnny Carson, I don't know if you see, this is like a late, late night television American show, right? And he's been dead for years. But I used to have this fantasy that I would be on a talk show and talking to Johnny Carson. And I would, and then when I finally did meet him, I was speechless. I was just babbling, you know, <laughs> and sort of like what I'm doing now. No, no, it's, it's a good little end. It's no, it's it's, diff, it's difficult, I think, to to do these sorts of things. Um, you know, I still struggle to this day. I think, and um, I think I think it's all about feeling comfortable, isn't it? I imagine with your interviewing, it took you. It would have taken some time, you know, before you kind of get into the swing of, of things, you know, like, was there, like, how many interviews did you do over that time? Um, not that many. Mm-hmm. I, I did uh, just a handful. Okay. Yeah. Um, most of the time, I mean, that was sort of like I was um, helping other people, like doing researching. I did mostly research, and um, so this came at the well. The documentary was sort of the pinnacle of my, you know, success. There was being able to do that, and it was just—it uh, wasn't like a—that uh, was my title, basically. You know, I was in programming, and I would—I could do a lot of things, but. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get that, <laughs> you know, I was an associate producer mm-hmm. for a while. So, um, it was, uh, so aside from the documentary that you did, were there any other kind of memorable moments, experiences from your time sort of working in TV and, and, and production? 
Um, memorable times while I was working. Well, you know, I think it was the friendships I made. Okay. And um, my best friends were people that I worked with. Um, I had a girlfriend who was at MGM and she was in charge of the archives. So had, uh, yeah. And she had a, an office at the, um, at, in Culver City. And um, she was um, very shy, actually. She, so she never really connected with my boss. And my boss was, was very timid. So she basically gave me her job. And, you know, I was her, her assistant. And then she, she said, I can't do this. I can't call and talk to people and, you know, and ask for material and information and when can I, and, and, and I need to get on the screening, you know, go get people on the screening list. So I got her job basically, <laughs> and I got a secretary and an office, and um, and then I made really good friends with my secretary, you know, mm. and I had a good relationship with my bosses, and then I had these friends that were publicists and you know VP of you know right the uh, the library. Um, so um, it was, it was, that was the fun part was I was young, I was making contacts and uh, networking and, and really making friends. So that was. That's good. It's nice to hear. Um, in that time, because obviously we hear all sorts of stories about Hollywood and, and that kind of industry and, and stuff like, was there anything that you saw maybe that was very strange or very, I don't know, wrong, inappropriate. I don't know, like anything that kind of just struck out to you as, as not being quite right or normal or, or something to that effect. Yes. Um, there was a lot of sexual harassment. There was. So um, from who, from like executives or actors yeah. or all of um, the above? All of the above. <laughs> Yeah. Oh wow. Um, okay. Yeah, they. Uh, I was. Uh, I worked for someone who just outright expected me to be his mistress, and uh, yeah, he in like a relationship that. way, or just kind of like waiting on your hand and foot, like a secretary, or like what would you mean? Yeah, I was his secretary, and it was like I was just started, you know, that case. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he was in the engineering and uh, operations department. So he was the vice president of that. And he's 50 and I'm like 25 or something, right? Or 24. And he's trying to touch me all the time. And he would get into these um, fits of rage and he would throw like pencils. Oh. Oh no. Lost you. I can't hear you. 
yeah, you didn't hear me. No, I didn't hear any of that, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, so this guy tried to, can you hear me now? I can, yes, yes. Okay, so this boss made the motion to slap me. And then I decided to transfer to another department. Mm -hmm. And I reported him. Yeah, did he get fired? He didn't. He was a vice president and best friends with the president and all that. Yeah. The, but he said, I'm going to blackball you and you'll never get another job in this industry again. And, you know, because he got known, to, well, my, the boss of I, I originally, you know, went to go work for, he said, let's go over to your boss and tell him the good news that you're going to be working for me. And God, it got around the, the um, studio that he was like a woman beater. And he tried to threaten me, you know, for spreading that rumor. But uh, he was, he was a very uh, despicable man, really. Did he ever get his comeuppance? Did you ever see that or did it just continue? Yeah, I saw him sort of get involved in like beta <laughs> um, max or something and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and please, he, please tell me he invested all his money and then it just sank because that'd yes. be brilliant <laughs> he did that oh. and so I you know I get it yeah most of these people aren't even alive anymore it's so. just it's just crazy to me because I mean, in many ways, it's completely, obviously, it's a different time, times change, you know, but um, luckily, we live in a time where these things, you know, if it happens, nine times out of 10, it gets reported, it gets dealt with now, you know, now it's dealt with. But back then, it's like, as you say, these people would, would threaten you or, or try to run you out of an industry or a job or whatever. And it's, it's just crazy to me to just to listen to this and hear this and think that this just happened all the time. I mean, obviously it's not the first time I've ever heard this and I'm sure our listeners, you know, have heard this all their lives, but it's like still crazy to listen to, you know, it's, it's just straight. And, you know, um, even when I was growing up, I, I saw it a little bit. Um, but then as I was growing up, you know, my first say job, like it, it would, these things wouldn't like, you know, you might see it, but then it would get dealt with eventually. You know what I mean? At least it, like someone would be like, oh, no, 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 that's not okay. And they would deal with it. But a lot of the time it comes down to creating like a, a fear atmosphere, I suppose, you know, like culture of fear, as they say. And the people at the very top control everything. I mean, for example, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein is, is, is such a big example of that. Um, I remember reading just a bit on him. I was just curious... Um, about a year ago I, was, I just wanted to kind of read up on it and I remember afterwards I started watching just some random movies and I just kept seeing his name in the credits like all the time just mm -hmm. constantly and I know obviously his his um spread was was wide and far and he was involved in many different things but like he like at one point you pretty much couldn't be in a major movie without his involvement in some shape or form which is a scary thing to think about you know if you're trying to make it as, as an actor or an actress and he's basically telling you like yeah you can be in this role but you have to do this for me and that thing might end up being something wildly 
disgusting and inappropriate and it's crazy um yeah i I truly hope that that's been fully eradicated from the industry i mean you never know for certain but you know at least at least least people are coming out and speaking about these things that's one saving grace at least yeah well and to be fair i used to see some strange things at kct where uh, people were trying to get like a, a um there's a project let's say and somebody wanted that role as a associate producer or something like that or a researcher and um she came directly to the woman that he had hired to be his producer and he and she said to him or her she said to her I'm going to get that job because I've been sleeping with that man for, you know, (laughs) right. And um, it's mine, you know, and the other woman just shrugged, you know, she said, well, I I have the position, I have the job, you know, but, uh, you know, who do you blame in that situation? You know, I mean, both, yeah. you have to both of them. It was consensual, but the woman herself even just came out and admitted it that she was, you know, using her um, sexuality to try to get ahead. See, unfortunately, that's just something that even to this day still gets people jobs and roles, you know, and you can try to to prevent it but these things and it's not just that you know things like nepotism still you know like it kind of broke my heart years ago when i realized that like to be honest your merit and hard work like rarely in a in a like a working for someone situation rarely gets you the recognition and rewards that you truly deserve. I mean, I'm not saying it never happens because there's plenty of good companies out there and, and that do reward their workers and do, you know, give them what they deserve. But a lot of the time it's like, you often hear about the same thing. I, I've been on the receiving end, you know, working tirelessly in a job, working crazy hours, you know, um, thinking that that will, you know, get me the job that I want or get me those, that extra recognition. Like surely they'll, they'll notice this and reward me. And then all that happens is you just set the bar really high and then that becomes the expectation. And then when you can't meet that because, you know, you're a human being and not a robot, uh, you just get thrown out, you know, you just get tossed away. Cause I think that's the thing that people forget as well is that like, you can easily be replaced. You can easily be pushed out of a position. And like that example that you gave that producer could have been the best producer ever. She could have been just fantastic, brilliant, like irreplaceable. But then that other woman who's got that particular link, let's say to the the older boss, she just gets it because of that link. And it's like, that's not fair. That's not just, that's not right. But that often will just happen because of like who owns the company or, you know, it's it's sickening that that this happens. Truly it is. And that's why it's, it's all the more, brilliant when you see someone get what they deserve in a good way and you know how hard they've worked for it and you know how much 
you know they've been rejected or how many times they've struggled etc and and they finally got it and and they're being and you can celebrate with them and that's a really awesome thing to see and and, and whatnot but it's just very frustrating yeah I, I remember once um i've told this story before but i'll just quickly add this here like uh, i was working i think i was 18 19 i was working really like crazy hours in this like supermarket and at the time i was kind of unsure what i wanted to do with my life you know i was pursuing music as well i was um and okay yeah it was it was just a supermarket job and you know maybe it wouldn't amount to much but i really did work hard like that there was like a supervisor role that they kept hanging above my head and i was like yeah yeah i can get this i deserve this i know i can do this and they kept giving me false hope they were like yeah you know we're doing that course that course is coming yeah, yeah, yeah it's coming it's coming but then things would happen like oh yeah oh sorry it's not happening this time another six months passes oh yeah, yeah, yeah. um this guy's coming in um, and then here's where it started to annoy me and I just lost all motivation. Like I'm, I lost my motivation after about eight months just from, you know, them lying to me and stuff like that and working hard and getting nothing. But a big thing that really annoyed me was they'd bring someone in. <laughs> I'd train them <laughs> to, to basically do the job. And then they become my manager. <laughs> like What? <laughs> and i was like and like i I was like and then they start trying to tell me what to do and i'm like hang on like and Um, and 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 another thing and this happened in multiple jobs as well and where you like the manager doesn't they might sometimes ask you like oh hey i need you to just manage while i'm gone and you're like yeah yeah no problem or they or they just leave and you just have to just manage yourself and you end up being the de facto boss even though you didn't ask for it and you do a good job, but they don't reward you for it. And you're like, this isn't fair. This isn't real, but that's life. And that's the, that's, yeah, no, that's the tough part about it. I think that not every company is going to be about that. Not every business owner is going to be like that. I always implore people to go pursue their own thing, be their own boss. I think that's the best way to go about it. But if you are pursuing a career, uh, I think it's important to try just maintain good relations with everyone as best you can. Don't obviously kiss anyone's asses or anything like that. I don't believe in that, but try your best to, to get on with people and hopefully it will work out. Cause I think that that's key really, isn't it? A lot of the time is, is not so much being good at your job, but being liked <laughs> is actually more important because we forget this as well. We think, Oh, well, you know, they're going to appreciate my professionalism and my hard work and my attitude. And it's like, they don't care about any of that. What they care about is, do I like this person? Can I stand to see you every day? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But that thing I've heard about where the, they say, supposedly, when you walk into a job interview, um, they've already decided if they want you in the first 20 seconds. And the ah. rest, it's just something I've heard, but it makes sense when you think about it. Like, you know, sometimes, like, I'm sure you've had this, where you, you have, like, a, a group interview situation. It's the worst. I hate this. But have you ever been in a group interview before? No. Okay. Well, what I can tell you about it, right, is an interview is bad enough, right? We, we can all relate to that. Imagine you're in a room. Well, firstly, a lot of the time they'll keep you in, in the... Um, there's one or two ways they'll do it. 
right so okay this isn't a group interview but like sometimes you you'll be in that little meeting area where everyone's sitting down and you're clearly all there for the same interview and you go one by one and you see the person come back and maybe they look happy maybe they look miserable who knows and that's that's number one number two an actual group situation they normally won't tell you you just walk into the room and there's pete there's loads of people it's not just you and now you've got to try to like perform, I guess. Now you've got to be like, oh, it's me. I'm the one that you want. I'm the best worker. And it's, it's just becomes like a horrible experience trying to win people over. And it's like, this isn't, this isn't what it's about. This isn't right. This, yeah, what? You know, but that, that's what you have to do. You have to perform, play it up a little bit. And then hopefully you'll get to the next stage. And then that's when you can really be like, okay, so this is why you should employ me, blah, 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 blah. But like some companies will just get straight to the point. The good companies will just be like, Hey, what can you do for us? Okay, great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. We'll give you a shot. That's, that's a good company, a bad company. Most companies tend to just make you jump through hoops until they eventually decide. Yeah. Okay. We'll employ this person. It's just like, Ugh. like it's just and some of the some of the stuff they ask you in interviews sorry I, I digress but i just since we're talking about this i just want to fire this out like some of the stuff they ask you like where do you see yourself in five years <laughs> it's like i don't even know what i'm gonna have for lunch today like what do you mean five <laughs> years like who thinks about that like really like you, you sure everyone has goals and aims but like life changes all the time like the goal the aims shift and you know what I mean? Like, and of course they say things like, Oh, you know, I want your job. <laughs> you know, I want to do that. I mean, sometimes I've said in interviews like, well, I'd like to maybe run my own firm marketing or, you know, I'd go like to go freelance, which I am now, you know, but <laughs> yeah, I don't lie anymore. I'm just very brutally honest in interviews and sometimes that's to a fault, but I just can't sit there and lie and be like, Oh boy, I would love to work 50 hours a week and get nothing. Yeah. That sounds great. Like, no, come on. <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of different jobs and di actually, yeah. Can I ask you but on that, on that um, topic, have you had any sort of crazy job interview experiences, anything good, bad, ugly? Oh, I, I did have an interview with some, well, it wasn't really an interview. He was just talking to me, but I was an extra on a film. Yeah. And he was talking to me and he said, uh, he was the casting person. He was saying, so what, what do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. And he said, what are you writing about? Oh, don't tell me. He said, I bet you're writing about your romantic life or something like that, you know? And mm. he said, mm, maybe. And he said, knowing your background, because I would guess I was, I told him that my mother was Japanese. Okay. And uh, Japanese American. She was, uh, you know, born in LA. And during World War II, she was interned. The whole family went to internment camps. Oh wow! And, um, she so my grandmother died in Wyoming, even though they had property out in California along the ocean, because they were farmers. 
And um, then my father's side is Chinese, and he joined the army because he was in Hawaii when they bombed Pearl Harbor. And um, so he joined the U.S. Army. And so while one of my parents were in camp, you know, the other one is in the army fighting, you know, or he was supposed to be a part of a, a certain unit. He didn't get into it. But um, he's, the, the casting director said, now that's what you should write about, your parents, because they're really have the story, you know, that, that's an interesting story to tell. And I thought, yeah, I guess so. But I, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I guess a part of me felt like um, I don't know them well enough, really. It's funny, they're your parents, but I don't really, I couldn't really tell like why they fell in love and things like that, you know, because things change, like you said. How do you see yourself in five years when you look back on your parents' life? And um, uh, there's so many questions I wish I could have asked them mm. when I had the chance. I will just say on a side note, like with that guy, like, first of all, he sounds like an ass. <laughs> if you're still alive, you're an ass. And you're mm. listening to this, you're an ass. Um, <laughs> Even if that is true, like, he, come on, you don't say that to someone. Like, oh, yeah, you're not interesting, but your parents, great. Like, come on, what, what, what does he expect? Like, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, brilliant. Like, you know, it, like I've, I've had people be that rude to me before. And I imagine that your response was probably just quiet thinking like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But mm. yeah, like, because it's like, sometimes someone is so rude that you're just like, wow. Like, you're not even angry. You're just like, wow, that's just wow but <laughs> um yeah um sp- speak speaking about that though just just for a second i, I realized like um obviously you didn't you didn't ask them like lots of stuff but like did did you ever ask your parents about that did you ever like were they ever did they ever talk about those experiences like like to talk about it for one thing yeah it was um, bad memories for both of them, I think. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so my mother would always say, "Oh, I don't remember," you know. And uh, was she, or how she, old would she have been? In she was probably in her mid twenties. <sighs> what happened to her was when they first got all the uh, Japanese Americans from Southern California, you know, in LA, they t- they all sent them to the Santa Anita racetracks where they stayed in stables, the horse stables. Wow. And um, my mother contracted tuberculosis there. So she was in a TB ward for seven years during the war. And uh, the rest of the family was sent to Heart Mountain, Wyoming. And my grandmother thought they were trying to poison them because she was used to eating certain foods like rice and fish and vegetables. And they were giving her milk and shredded wheat. And mm. she didn't know, you know, this is not really in their diet, you know, 
traditional Japanese. She was because my grandmother was born in Japan, and she thought that it was straw, and <laughs> they were trying to poison her. You know, and funny thing is, I like shredded wheat. You know, <laughs> it's like because I'm an American, but she was, you know, she wasn't used to. It was cold, and she was used to it being, you know, nice and temperate climate in California and uh, so I guess that was sad you know sad times I, so I, she go on. didn't yeah she didn't want to talk about it and yeah I mean people deal with trauma in different ways don't they but I, I would imagine and some some people I've met over the years you know, when I was living in Europe it was a similar thing you'd ask them about these experiences and they'd say like Hey, I'm living in the here and now. You know, that was then, this is now. And I, I get that. You know, like my father is the same. Like when I've asked him about the past, he's like, I'm right here. This is where I need to be. And I, I respect that. I get that. I, th I think that, you know, I never used to understand it as much in the past, but I get it now. I think I understand this concept of like triggering things. I think it can be a very dangerous thing sometimes, especially if you've kind of, built up like um a defense to something like you you've kind of internalized it in some way maybe you've resolved it and you've come to terms with it and then when you're forced to kind of revisit it i think that can kind of quote unquote like reopen old wounds cause damage cause problems so i imagine for them they probably just wanted to like move on with their lives and just you know okay these were horrible experiences but that doesn't need to be what my whole life is kind of thing maybe I, i'm just theorizing but yeah um but on more happier note like how do you did your parents talk about like how how they met yes yeah i got two versions my, <laughs> <mother> said, <laughs> my father said i used i saw this woman with great legs high heels she wore this very fashionable hat and she was walking down the street going to work, you know, and she would stop off at the coffee shop and read a Time magazine. So my mother said, there was this guy who kept stalking me. <laughs> <laughs> and he, would, he was a real smooth talker and he, would, he always knew where I was going to have lunch and where I was going <laughs> to... <laughs> so it was, uh, it was fun. Yeah, he's the courtship. He was good. older than him. So oh, he's, he was older. She's older. Oh, she's older. Like, oh. Yeah, seven years. So she was sort of looking at him like, you're just a kid in a way, you know. And he was, I guess. Um, if she was like 30 when they met or 31, um, he was only 23 or something, 24. Damn. Yeah. Fair play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously bringing it back to yourself, like, would you say that, I mean, obviously parents have like a profound impact on their children, but as you kind of, sort of said quite firmly that like you consider yourself American like that's 
the country you're born in. That's what, how you're raised. So to what, in, what extent did they have an impact on your life and, and how you think and feel and, and live your life? Oh, interesting. Um, well, I've never felt anything. People used to say, you know, they come directly up to me and say, what are you? <laughs> and I'd say, oh, I'm Japanese and Chinese and American. And I'd always have to explain the American part because mm. people look at you, they're not sure what's going to come out of your mouth, you know. I could speak Japanese or Chinese and I don't know either language because my parents didn't speak it to us. Oh, really? That's no. interesting. Oh, my father never knew Chinese. Um, his oh. family had been like fourth generation Hawaiians. They lived oh. in Hawaii. So they never, you know, they were just English okay. speaking. My mother forgot most of her Japanese because she was schooled in English, she'd go home, and then her parents would say, no, you can't speak English in the house. You want to speak English, you have to go to the barn, <laughs> you know? And so the kids would go to the barn so they could talk to each other. It was a big family. And because that was, that was more natural for them, you know? And Japanese was like a second language to them as opposed to, even though, you know, her, her mother spoke to her in Japanese, she wasn't schooled that way. So she was very American and she, she did all sorts of things that um, shocked the family, like Japanese just supposed to have long, straight black hair, right? Well, when she was 13, she got it cut and she got it curled, a perm, and she was wearing makeup and, she, you know, and she, and they were a very religious family. So <laughs> that, that was horrifying for them. And she went out of the way to read all of the um, banned books, you know, <laughs> anything that was banned, she'd read those books, you know, the, the church said, no, you can't read this. You can't read Candy by Voltaire. She's a rebel. <laughs> yes. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Um, you mentioned earlier that you interviewed for an extra role in a movie. That was a Kevin Costner movie, was it? No. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you know what the movie was? No it was called No Way Out. No Way Out. And um, it had um, Sean Young, Gene Hackman. And uh, David Bowie's wife had a short role, a small role in it, Iman. Oh, wow. cool. Yeah. So this was early in his career. No one really, he had done maybe one or two films. He was, he had done um, just like small roles, right? He had small roles in big films. So, um, I remember it was really cold. It was it was the scene where I was supposed to be a streetwalker, a Filipino streetwalker, and they they had hundreds of extras out on Terminal Island, and it was six o'clock in the morning. And it was freezing, 
and I had this big puffy pink coat and they made me wear a tube top, you know, and I was, and I was, and they said, you can't wear your jacket in this scene. You have to take it off, right? So I took off the jacket and, and they took it away from me. And then Kevin Costner came over and said, you're freezing. Here, get, get, get my sweater. So <laughs> they got his sweater and he put <laughs> it on. And we started talking and I said to him, I really liked you in Silverado. It was, you were really very funny, you know? And he was impressed that I knew who he was. Meanwhile, there was another girl who didn't know who he was and uh, thought he was just an extra. <laughs> she was trying to hit on So she was saying, why are you so nice to that scuzzball, you know? And, and I'm talking about, it. you know, he's the... Uh, <laughs> he's the lead. <laughs> I get oh, it though. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, they said, okay, we want you in another scene. Oh, cool. So I, I had another scene and they, you know, again, they put me in another little blouse and, um, in this scene is, um, they go into a topless bar and he's calling Sean Young, um, Kevin Cosner. So I'm in the foreground, not, and then in the background are all these strippers, you know, topless, topless dancers, that is. And um, I'm in the foreground, so uh, the guy who plays the buddy, you know, of, of uh, Kevin Cosner picks me up and he starts doing this and, you know, dancing with me. And he's like lifting me up in the air and just kind of shaking me, you know? And so they did that take about eight times, I remember. And during the filming, well, during the lunch actually, was where I felt this tension between the writer and Kevin Cosner, because Cosner, the writer came up to me as I was waiting in line for the lunch buffet. And he said, hi, I'm the least important person on this production. I'm the screenwriter. And uh, would you like to uh, sit over there with us? You know, with, you know, and I said, oh, all right. And um, he asked me my name and everything like that, you know. So then I, sit, I go and take myself over there. And then Kevin Costner sees me with um, Robert Garland, the screenwriter. And says, oh, Garland, this is Pam. Pam, this is Garland. And he suddenly, his voice changed. It was almost like hostile, you know? Huh. And by the end of the evening, he was saying to me, what are you going to do after this? Where are you going? Yeah. You know? And um, I think the screenwriter gave me his number. We exchanged numbers by then. And um, I said, well, I'm just going to have dinner with my family. And my brother came in from out of town and, you know, very innocently. And I, he was like, oh, like he was relieved or something, you know. And huh. like I was going to go out with, and, with the writer. Oh, so he just didn't like the writer, I guess. Like not a fan no, of him. He, 
Yeah, I mean, he was close to him because he hired him to do a couple of the movies, you know, to write a couple of the movies with him. But apparently, Cosner was sort of on the prowl <laughs> during that time, even though he was married. So, uh, uh, naughty, naughty. Yes, that was a little bit. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds like a pretty cool and varied experience overall it's interesting insight it's always i mean i've i've only ever been on a, a few movie sets like big productions and i don't know from my experience was it was just boring <laughs> just waiting around for ages and ages and maybe it's just action films maybe it's just that but just ugh. <laughs> can something please happen <laughs> Yes. But um, but I don't know. Talking to talking to people on set is always interesting. Actually, like uh, I don't know. Like for me, when when I was on Tenet, I spoke a lot to like the costume designer and some of the production agents and stuff, and that was interesting. You know, weird thing was I remember on that set. Bear in mind, I was in Estonia when that was being filmed, and um, I saw someone I went to school with, and I, I was like, that can't be. And I walked over and it was, and I called his name and he kind of looked a bit stunned as well. And we just looked at each other for a second. And he's like, Hey, and then we just had a conversation for about half an hour. And it's, it's just like, what the hell? <laughs> it's just, life is weird. But yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's that brilliant. Um, moving it forward. I'd just like to kind of ask a couple of questions about your, um, I suppose like, what you've learned in life like what's the best advice you've ever received mm. well my mother used to say um if you want to fall in love fall in love get married get married have kids whatever but always be financially self-sufficient and i thought that was a strange my mother was working at a time when most mothers just stayed home and were there for the kids, you know, and her, their husbands come home from work and they, and my mother worked 40 hours a week. So, um, it was different. And, uh, I think she instilled in me that sense of autonomy that I really need to always think it's, it's sort of sounds selfish, but you do have to put yourself first. You have to think about, how to take care of yourself before you can even think about being in a relationship even you mm. know um otherwise it becomes very codependent you know i, I totally agree with that concept i mean I'm, I'm single but i've had a lot of time to think about what i want in a relationship and i think i've kind of come to a similar mindset of what your mum has which is that i think not not just with being self-sufficient but i think it's like the best scenario is that it's two individual people coming together and like sharing a life but still having their own lives you know you still have time for yourself yourself sorry you still have a career have these different things that you goals you know you, you, your life doesn't just end or stop for that other person you know and i get that different relationships are different and whatnot but i just think generally that's the best situation because 
if you do it in that manner, then it, it prevents things like resentment from happening. You, know, you hear it so many times in relationships with people, you know, they put aside their dreams and hopes to have family or something. Um, or, or like, well, it's, I suppose it's maybe it's different if you have kids, but like may, maybe, maybe they, they put aside their dreams and hopes for their partner, let's say, and then they began to resent them over time. And it's like, well, that's kind of the key, isn't it? You shouldn't put yourself to one side. Like you, it's you, that's it's your life, you know, and it's difficult. Like, I mean, especially if you add other things into the equation, another person, children, etc. but you still got to make time for you. Um, but that whole self-sufficiency thing from a financial standpoint, I think that's smart because anything could happen. You know, you don't know. You could break up tomorrow, get divorced, whatever. It's like, what are you going to do? What yeah. are you going to do? Like, well, yeah. um, I've been married a couple okay. of times and divorced. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first marriage, no, well, my, he didn't even have the checking account. <laughs> he was 12 years older than me or 11 years older than me. And for some reason, he didn't have any credit cards, any credit, any, any, you know, he didn't even have a checking account. He just used cash. And that sounds I, dodgy. I'm sorry. I yeah. call, I call BS right there. What's going on there? <laughs> he was my geology professor. So that marriage didn't last very long. Dang. Now, the second marriage, my, we were the closer in age mm -hmm. and first thing he wanted was to get a joint checking account. <laughs> and I was like, well, all right, I guess we're married. We'll, we'll have, you know, we'll have three, we'll have a joint checking account. What's, and it was the worst thing I made. What was the, why, why, why would you want that? Like, I, I, I'll be honest, like, I would, I'd just be like, I wouldn't want that. No, no. And I would never do that now, you know, and at the moment, at the time, he somehow convinced me that this was a good thing, you know. How? And, we, well, I don't know, like, we would pool our resources somehow, you know. And and yet, I remember he was the one that was bouncing the checks, you know. So yeah, I was gonna say it's got to be some sort of scheme or something, or like this yeah, dodgy, dodgy yeah. bit multi-level marketing business scheme or something. Uh, <laughs> what's going on? He's an accountant, <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I don't know. So that's my other thing: always have your own checking account, <laughs> even if you were married. There are any other? tips you could share like relationship tips that you've learned that you could impart to our listeners ah uh, relationship tips oh boy i think you have to be open-minded hmm. and uh, you have to be kind of ready to want to have a relationship you know, a lot of people, they, they, well, you go on sites, you know, and they say, I don't know what I want. I don't know what I'm looking for. And, and that's honest, I think. More honest than saying, I want a relationship. I want to get married. You know, I mean, those are so finite. I mean, in a way, it's like, how do you know you're going to be able to meet that person that you want to marry? That's a big step, you know, so um 
just, I guess, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, but not to the point of being foolish. Hmm. And um, because you want to be able to be honest with the other person and show, you know, that you're human, you have flaws. You don't want to hide anything and have them discover later, you know, you're not who you, you presented yourself to be. So, uh, yeah, I guess honesty and uh, just being open-minded to um, strangers. I mean, this is frightening, you know, because you don't know them. So uh, uh, I guess you have to develop a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, inner resources, you know, to be able to know the difference between what seems like this this could be a relationship or this could be a catfish you know i don't you know you you have to go through that balancing act of not knowing for a while i agree with all of that but in particular what you were saying at the beginning about how you have to know that that you want a relationship. I don't think enough people think about that. They think about what's missing from their life. They think about, oh, I'm lonely. Oh, I want to be loved. Oh, I want to be appreciated. I understand that everyone wants that. But a relationship, at least in my understanding of it, and this is mostly through making mistakes and having a lot of time to think. I've been single now about four years. Just saying. <laughs> I'm so learning now. Um, you no, know, but truthfully, it's it's made it's it's been a good thing because I've I've sat down and I've really thought about well, what what is a good relationship? What makes a relationship work? And there are a lot of answers to that question. But I think one key thing in a relationship of any kind, be it with friends, family, a lover, etc is you have to be willing to put aside your own self-interests in order to be able to be empathetic to that person. And even the concept of empathy is something that I had to learn, you know, and it sounds crazy. Like, what do you mean? You're not empathetic, but I used to think it was like, Oh, you give advice, you know, you're, you're like this, but actually, and again, I could be wrong, but this is what I've learned is that, it, it, it mainly involves just sitting down and being present with that person, listening to what they have to say and trying. Yeah. It's like trying to hear that deeper thing that they're saying, like don't so much pay attention to the words they're saying, but try to hear the deeper thing that's coming out. So like, for example, if someone's telling you, about you know i don't know they're just not happy at work they're unfulfilled whatever like the bigger thing that they're trying to say with that is like well how do i change that how do i become fulfilled and and appreciated etc you know they don't want you to sit there and go well have you tried this have you tried that they might ask you but they need to feel that they're in control of the situation because for whatever reason, they're not in that moment. And by 
interrupting or not listening properly or giving advice when it's not asked for. And I'm still guilty of this to this day. And I'm, I'm always trying to not do that because it's, it's very difficult when sometimes you hear someone saying something, and you're like, oh, of course it's this. But then they didn't ask you. They didn't ask for that. They already know that. Probably. So it's, it's, it's important to keep your mouth shut and just listen and be there. And sometimes that is all someone needs in the context of empathy, at least. But wider than that, as I said before about the selflessness within a relationship, I think it's like understanding that it's not always going to be sunshines and daisies. Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes a relationship is about it's kind of akin to like being in a storm and you're in a boat and it's feels like it's sinking and all you have is each other and you've just kind of got to work through it. I think that's love at its core. I think Hollywood sold us a lie. That stuff exists. There is romance. There is true love. There is kind feelings, these small little things, these beautiful things that make up love. But at the same time, it's also the bad times the hard times it's it's those things that's what a lot of the time movies and tv don't show you you know because they only want to focus on the good times and paint their little convenient story but they don't tell you about how sometimes love is sitting there for like five hours eight hours or all night and just listening to someone and continuously reassuring them and you know i think when you when sometimes if you walk away from someone when you choose to leave someone i think a lot of the time it comes down to the fact that you've exhausted every option when it comes to those things and you just can't make it work unfortunately sometimes there's other reasons just bad relationship people don't work whatever but for instance if you're always being there for someone and empathetic Sooner or later, it's going to work and it, you're going to get the desired result. But sometimes, you know, people don't want to hear, don't want help. They just want to complain and drag you down. And it's, it's difficult. Sometimes you, you have to know when to walk away and protect yourself and think of yourself. And other times you have to understand that all that someone needs is a little bit of compassion and a little bit of understanding and they need that every once in a while. Like if someone has confidence issues, self-esteem issues, they probably just need to be pepped up and reminded how special they are. But it's, it's a tough one. So yeah, I, I completely agree with your, with your idea and your sentiment on that. Like, I think that people don't think about this enough, you know, like for instance, right now, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, but I am tremendously lonely right now. And it's hard sometimes but I know that if I would just go for the first thing I see, first thing, you know, first opportunity, you know, jump on that train. It's like, what if I don't like the destination that I'm going to? You know, I just jumped on at the random time just because I was lonely and it was better than feeling like I, I think that's worse. I think it's worse to, to jump into something that makes you unhappy. And I've been in that situation before. I've been in a relationship where you know, I just desperately wanted to be out of it because I wasn't happy. And it's horrible to be in that situation. And being single is, is, a, is better than that, to be honest. You get those lonely moments and you get those feelings where you feel unlovable, you feel it's a difficult time. But I think you also learn to appreciate yourself more and 
appreciate what you deserve. And I think that's key as well. And as cringy as it might sound, or cringy, but cliche as it might sound, you do have to learn to love yourself first before you can love anyone else. Um, because that ultimately being able to self care and treat yourself like a, I don't know, something sacred will help you to do the same with a partner for the deserving partner. And so, yeah, I think it's something that people don't that take lightly. They, they think too much of these, these things like lonely. I mean, Jesus, you can be, you can be with someone, be happily married and have everything you want and still feel lonely. Do you know what I mean? It's, I think you have to address the real things that you want. Do you really need or want a relationship or is there a deeper thing that you need to address within yourself? That's just my five cents on that. <laughs> Good advice. I mean, I take advice from my daughter who's 30. Oh, wow. She's been in a relationship for 15 years. Wow, her congrats. Her only boyfriend, <laughs> you know, and um i i don't have long-term relationships i mean i i think right now i'm in a relationship that started in like 2018 mm -hmm. and when we broke up in 2019 um some misunderstanding i immediately rebounded with somebody uh, mm -hmm. uh, which was a big mistake he turned out to be a recovering narcissist he said recovering and, um, what the hell is that okay <laughs> <laughs> he said he had a lot of therapy but he realized he was a narcissist and he was oh. and um there was this gaslighting going on for a couple of years you know where he made me feel like i wasn't good enough i wasn't smart enough he felt competitive towards me you know and i w wondered why i was in this relationship except i was just filling a void you know it was sort of like it was a convenient to to have this relationship even though i wasn't happy you know i was sort of like oh i i have it's sort of like you have the security of having someone but then you're not happy with that person. So what's the point, you know? And um, we, when we broke up, it was because I couldn't take the fact that he never accepted me for who I was, you know, with all my flaws and everything like that, you know, or whatever couple extra pounds I had on me, you know? I mean, the fact that he couldn't accept that just, I said, that's it. I don't, you know, I don't want to be in this. It's not rewarding for me anymore. You know, I don't feel good about myself. You know, you don't make me feel good about myself. So, um, and then I, re and then I, I rediscovered my ex-boyfriend. So, um, we've been together since, um, that, but, um, it's bad to, you know, it's bad to just always jump from one relationship to another. And I had a tendency to do that, even though I always wanted to, I enjoyed living alone. 
and I always had guys that wanted to move in with me and I tried to resist all the time, you know. <laughs> I'm in high demand. <laughs> yeah. I think they like my apartment. That's fine. <laughs> I lived two blocks from the beach at one time. They liked and, you. They liked you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 will, I will say just well done for, for having the courage and strength to walk away in that situation. You have to value yourself. You know, pe people can't drag you down and they can't treat you like that. It's, it's never acceptable. Well done. And I'm happy to hear that you're in a, a happy relationship now. So congratulations. That's awesome. Um, another deep question for you. My favorite question. Yeah. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? I guess never say never. <laughs> you don't know, you know, life is long or can be long. And anything can happen, you know, good and bad. But uh, you have to be willing to be resilient to go whichever way you're being pushed. You know, you don't want to break, so you bend. And, um, but it's sort of like saying, where do you see yourself five years from now? You know, for someone like me, I could be dead in five years. No, 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 no. you're gonna, you're gonna live and you're gonna be very healthy. Don't worry about that. I'm, I am healthy. Or I could live for another 30 years. Yes. You know, right? And, be like a hundred years old, <laughs> but <laughs> um, biggest life lesson is to be loved. I think to to love somebody. I think it's it is better to love than to be loved. I I have having had a child, I've kind of realized that my life was secondary to hers, that she would always come first and that that's my role now. You know, once I became a mother was to give her a life. She didn't ask to be born, so try to give her the happiest life I could, you know, and, uh, and trying to help other people. Because I, I spent so much time trying to advance my own career or my own romances or whatever, it comes down to other people. You know, you want to be, you want to be kind to other people. Thanks for sharing. It's amazing stuff, honestly. Um, as we draw things to a close for today, do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, my see projects. Well, <laughs> I still don't have the courage to go live on TikTok. Oh, do it, do it! Oh, people will love it. It'd be I, brilliant. And I and I don't know what time to go on because I think about hmm. most of the people I've met through TikTok is through you, and they're mostly in the UK. <laughs> so that would be. Your yeah, Californian time, so it's like yeah. morning time for you, basically. 
Mm-hmm. That'd be the best time. Because that's evening, mid-evening time here, mid to late the evening, something like that. So, yeah. But, yeah, definitely do that. 100%. Be great. You'd be very good at it. I think people would really love to hear you talk and share your thoughts and insights on life and, and do your poetry, of course. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. I'll try to get up the nerve. Awesome. This is hard. <laughs> I know, I know, but it, it'd be good. You enjoy it, for sure. Okay. Um, well, I want to say a massive thank you for, for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, just a massive thank you for agreeing to do this. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. And uh, to all of the listeners of the Christian Reeve podcast, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.